0: Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful episode with the Leadership is Changing podcast. I had the privilege of actually interviewing a guy called Marcus Olson, who's the CEO and founder of Plancy, a technology enabled professional services company that helps growing startups scale their corporate IT. Now, if you think about compliancy and take out the COM out, you got Plancy. That's the name of his organization that he started. But the conversation was really quite cool. And what he's done and what he shares about using or what he did with old computers was fascinating. And so watch out for that and listen to, listen to that. But the other thing too is that he shared some really cool notes or topics, like could put that way, and I took heaps of notes. People want to work with passionate people is one thing he definitely talked about. Growing into leadership and then empowering great minds. But you notice that the title is Tell People the Why and then get out of the way, and what he shared there was about leaders actually setting the why, the vision, and so forth, but hey, get the heck out of the way, and let people get on with it, but anyhow, I'm going to let you sit back and listen, because he has shared some wonderful insights, so enjoy the episode. Hey there, listeners. It's great to have you with me, and I've got a wonderful guest with me today, too. His name is Marcus Olson. Marcus, a massive welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Hey, whereabouts in the world are you today? I am in Austin, Texas. Are you? Austin? Oh, I love Texas. I think Texas is a place that I would like, if I wanted to go to the U.S. to live, it would be Texas. Yeah, just avoid the summer. Yeah, it's really hot. It was a brutal one this year. Yeah, it's really, really hot. Hey, yeah, cool. Hey, look, I've given the listeners a little bit of a introduction to you and your background. Tell us a little bit more about you.
1: Yeah, I am an IT guy. That's just basically what I call myself. I've been a technology passionate person since I got my first computer when I was somewhere around ten years old. It was an old IBM two eighty six, and I just fell in love with technology. And I've always had some sort of role ever since interacting with people and helping them use technology in some way or fashion. And eventually I started a consulting firm that basically works with small emerging companies or investment firms and helps them leverage technology to grow their businesses.
0: Mm, Very good. And I understand that you managed to get, well, disassemble and also reassemble computers from an old Black & Decker office. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I grew up poor, and my mom worked a couple different jobs all at once, and one of them was a receptionist, or I'm sorry, an an assistant at Black & Decker in the Midwest, and when they closed that branch down, she had built such great rapport with the executives that they gave her a lot of the computers. And I think they intended for her to go and sell them on the secondary market because they were worth several thousand dollars back then. And very few people, if anyone had a home computer at that time, this would have been like early 90s, very, very early 90s. And she just brought them home, didn't know what to do with them. And so I just started taking them apart and putting them back together. And I just became fascinated with the world behind the computer. As somebody who was always passionate about building things, it was like an infinite way to just keep building and creating things. And it cost nothing. Like once you're up and running, you could write programs all day long. You didn't need to go buy materials. You didn't have to go to the hobby store. You didn't have to buy a baseball bat, and a glove. So it was like for somebody that didn't have a lot of money growing up, it was like an infinite playground for me, and I just immediately fell in love with it.
0: Oh, good on you! And and I understand that you you launched Pliancy, which is the the, the organization that you're the founder of about five years ago, and it's grown to about thirty six million dollars in annual revenue, and you've got about hundred and 25 employees and seven different offices across the U.S.
1: Yeah, it's like 132 now today, but it's, you know, we're still hiring and growing pretty rapidly despite the the economic uncertainty. But yeah, I, I guess I rebooted it about five years ago. You know, it was originally a stodgy old consulting firm where it was like maybe five of us and we were doing professional services the old fashioned way, which was go and find the best talent you can hire them, assign clients, and just do everything by hand and manual. And about five years ago, I saw this big shift of technology and kind of rebooted the firm. And, I, and, and one of the reasons that I rebooted it, to be fair, I've always been passionate about design. I've always been passionate about brand. I've always been passionate about people and psychology. And I looked around in the marketplace and there was professional services have always seemed to fall flat on why do they exist right? What's the brand? Why? It's just a black and white website or a black and blue website with a bunch of handshakes and ties and whiteboards. And, you know, I was like, what if somebody built a brand that really expressed their authenticity about what they're passionate about, which was for me showing people how to use technology and being a part of amazing companies that want to leverage technology to further their missions. And so I spent a year trying to work with this amazing branding company that did the brands of like Cal and Lee and Outreach and all these really established brands. And I just emailed them for over and over and over again for a year, begging them to just talk to me, just talk to me, just talk to me. You know, they're always saying you can't, Hey, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Right, buddy. You know, that kind of thing. But I was adamant that I wanted to build a really meaningful brand. And they eventually responded. And agreed to finally, reluctantly, meet with me, and they met my passion too, and they met what I wanted to accomplish and and build, and they agreed to work with us, which I thought was a, such a pivotal moment. And so we spent a year creating the brand, Pliancy, that we have today. And they just interviewed me for hours and hours and hours about what do you care about and why, why have you been doing this fifteen years, you know, or I guess at that point it was like ten years, and we created this brand. And that's when I relaunched the company. And when I relaunched the company, that's when it took off. We didn't change what we do really. We didn't change anything. We just communicated authentically to the world why we care, and it attracted like-minded people that were just as passionate about getting technology into the hands of emerging companies. And it just took off from there. We compete with really deep-pocketed people, and we outpace them. We grow faster than them. We get better logos than them. We retain our clients longer. And it was all because we communicated what our values were and what we're about and attracted like-minded people. And so- that's when
0: we became pliancy. Did their branding organization go, gosh, why did we take so long to talk to you?
1: Yeah, they, I think they really enjoyed the process. Some of those people work here now. Oh. And yeah, some of those people, I went out on their own and we work with them still as independents. We were their first kind of clients. So I think they were just so passionate. I mean, everyone, it's no different than your employees. Even service providers want to work with passionate people there's just something about helping other people achieve meaningful things that just is a force to be reckoned with. When you meet somebody that wants to achieve their dream and as a friend or a family member, there's just something that makes you give them almost more than you give yourself sometimes. And I think that they just were so blown away by how passionate I was about this Commoditized, boring industry that I was in that they found it a really interesting challenge. And then secondly, when working with really creative people, you know, if you've ever worked with an architect or an artist or anybody, spend more time finding them and less time telling them what to do. And what I mean by that is so you go find somebody that creates things that you are blown away by every time. Their portfolio, eighty percent of it, you just love, if that's a home, if that's a brand, and then you do whatever you can to work with them and then communicate to them what you care about and then get out of the way. And they will create these astonishing brands that you just fall in love with. And I think they just respected how I understood the creative process. And you know, no different than employees, right? It's the same thing with employees, right? Tell them the why and then get out of the way. And so, yeah. but that's really hard when you're doing brands and design, right? You know, everybody, oh, I'll change it from that color to this color. Oh, I don't like that font. Or, oh, it's the logo. I don't like that. Or can we do this? But if you just get out of the way and then give them clear instruction, they'll create something impressive. And I think they'll enjoy working with you, even if your industry's boring. At least that's what I tell myself.
0: Nice. There you go. Listeners, for well, already, there's a big boom in this episode so far with Marcus and the way that we're talking about things and getting out of the way. It's tell people the why and then get out of the way and let them get on with what they're really good at. And you may be surprised, but you will be blown away about what they go ahead and do too. So yeah, fantastic. So Marcus, how did you get into leadership?
1: Yeah, I I, I accidentally, you know, like most small business owners, you you start by yourself and then eventually you have an employee and then you have two and then you have 10 and then you have 100. And as you're growing, you grow into leadership. So one of the things philosophies I always had is I'm not the CEO until I do the role of a CEO. And so I didn't give myself the CEO title until probably about a year ago, when we were about maybe 80 employees. Until then, I always carried the role of what uh, the work I was doing. So I was a director of consulting for a year or two. And before that, I was a consultant for 12 years. Even when we had 30 employees, I still called myself a consultant. And there was no one on the website that had the title CEO. So I guess as I felt like I was doing that role better, I would move my title and responsibilities to align to that. But that's how I got into it. I just started a small company doing consulting and eventually grew it to the point where it needed leadership. And then I consumed just enormous amounts of content, podcasts such as this, and just wanted to understand what is a good leadership? What does it look like? And I wanted to understand perspectives and I was very fortunate also to be surrounded by amazing leaders because I was working with really bold startup companies that were in life sciences and finance, and they were previous founders of incredible companies. And while I'm over there helping them with technology, whatever it might be, building a laptop, I've got, you know, the the cup to the wall with my ear, just listening to everything they're talking about, why are they invested in this company or that company and absorbing it. And it's been a journey for me to learn how to lead, and I'm still learning today.
0: Nice. So when you say helping them with their like leaders and building their business with technology, are we talking about the actual infrastructure? Are we talking about the software? What part are we talking about? It's a great question. For me, helping people with technology
1: is helping them understand the benefits of technology and helping them change because people get so ingrained with how they're doing things that they oftentimes overlook ways to do it better or faster. And so for me, it was always educating them that there was all these different alternatives. So that could be, you know, I guess the nuts and bolts of it would be setting up the server, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it is, or hooking up the email. But I think where I differentiated and has served quite well to this company is I didn't stop there. As a Midwesterner growing up in Minnesota, you would have a two-hour conversation with somebody at a gas pump you'd never met. And so we weren't so great with boundaries and everybody was your best friend. And so... I'm working at these clients and I think they expected me to just show up and fix the laptop or crawl underneath the desk and, you know, set up things like that. And when I was done doing that, I would watch what they were doing and say, hey, did you know there's a better solution for that? Did you know you don't have to print checks? You can use bill.com. Have you heard of this technology? Have you seen that? And a lot of times I'd say, no, no, we're good." Yeah, it's good. But I wouldn't stop. I would just keep going and going and going. Oh, and I want to understand, well, why are they resistant to this? You know, why don't they want to change? You know, and so I just became just fascinated with understanding people and working with them to understand how I can get them to slowly migrate and change. And then five years later, they'd be like, that was the best experience ever. For me, it was hell, you know, five years convincing them and working with them, but eventually they'd come around. And so that's what I became passionate about. and, And that's how I kept this term consultant, when the, most of the industry that I'm in went to techs or field techs. And I just hung on to this term consulting because I felt we could do just so much more than fix laptops for businesses.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of the people I work with, they complain about the fact that, well, they struggle with the fact that they don't have enough time in the day, so many things to get done. I'm sure there's apps out there. I'm sure there's technology out there today that's going to help them with their time, not for them to just to do the work, but also maybe delegating and things like that. Is that something that you experience with people as well that you work with? I experience it with
1: myself every day. I'm very self-aware. I was just meeting with the leader of our data team, and he's trying to convince me to use this tool called Looker that we have in our company that's you know kind of like Tableau, where you can build your own dashboards, and they've got all the data piped in. we got like a four or five-person data team piping in all this amazing data. And they're like, you can go answer your own questions in the data. And I'm like, Blair, I don't have time to learn Looker right now. And, you know, and he's like, well, do you just not care about data and, you don't care, you know, do you not care about how we could use this for beta data driven decision making and everything? I'm like, Blair, we spend two million dollars a year on data. We probably spend more than any of our competitors on data. Of course I care. Then I'm like, I got to go, Blair. I have to go have a meeting. So I hop in the car to go drive to this meeting and it's like I get five minutes away from my house and I'm like, oh, you jackass. Yeah, to myself, I'm like, you are exactly what you, you know, Blair is doing to you, what you did to executives for so many years back in the day, just stop printing checks, use this technology, stop doing that. You know, if you have two monitors, you can get more done. And so I reflected and I set another meeting with him today, a day later and said, all right, let me come back to this. And, you know, okay, why did I say that? We did like the five why exercise, right? Like, why did I do that? Why did I say it didn't have time? Why did I not value it? Right. And we came to this great conclusion of how we're going to fix that. Yeah, and so, but yeah, that is the struggle. Is like we're all resistant to change, and so that was a learning experience for me. But yeah, yeah,
0: wow. Here's a question for you: and you know, this person can be alive or from history. Who's your favorite leader, and why?
1: You know, I would say that there isn't any one. I think of all of them as having certain traits that do certain things exceptionally well. Steve Jobs was stubborn, and I respected that immensely you know, and I look at a lot of the things I do, I'm stubborn as well. But he also had a great design eye. And you look at Elon Musk, one of the best salespeople in the world, you know, like him or not, you know, he sells ice to Eskimos and he can communicate broad visions to people, you know. And so they each, you know, every single one of them has something that I really, really appreciate about them, but there isn't any one that I'm particularly enamored with or follow. And I think that's important. I think that perspectives in multiple perspectives is far better than following one person's playbook. There's no right way to do leadership. There's just wrong ways. And that's how I always looked at it. So I just consume all of it.
0: If there was one person though, that you could have a coffee on a park bench with and have a chat with, because you know, you talk about a two hour chat with Minnesota and things like that. If you could have a coffee with them and you could ask them one question, which person would it be that you would love to ask a question and what would that question be?
1: Steve Jobs, and probably not for the reason most people maybe would, but I would just love to understand if he would be authentic or honest, which he may or may not have been, but like, I just would have been really, really curious to understand like the inner workings of Apple because it's so secretive and you hear stories and things but like from the leadership's perspective i would have loved to have heard the things that didn't go well at apple all you ever hear about is what went well at apple but yeah right. i think i learned best from what didn't and so i would ask him like what were the biggest failures of apple and how did you learn from them is if i could yeah. You know?
0: hmm. nice question yeah that's good all righty now the show here is called leadership is changing when we talk about that title or that statement What does that mean for you? I think it's becoming more people-centric. So
1: I've only led one company, that's sizable at least. And I've always had this philosophy of investing in people. And I've always had this philosophy of that people are the product and that you need to recruit the best ingredients and you need to invest in them and the rest tends to fall in place. And so that to me, I think is a divergence from maybe some of the more historic leaders in the sense that it's a little bit more of a democracy, maybe a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more transparent and authentic. And you look at some of the previous leaders and they never talked about the failures and it was very strict and very hierarchy driven. And I think that today, the t-shirt wearing authentic, relatable leadership is more effective in Another way to look at that is I think today people want to follow authentic leaders and in the past they wanted to follow bold, inspirational, you know, suit wearing, unattainable types, but those aren't relatable people. I see that as aspirational, not relatable. And I think we all are inspired when somebody that's like us has achieved meaningful results. And that is easier to go, oh, I can do that as opposed to, I want to, you know, achieve some massive financial wear tie and be in the biggest office at the top of the thing. But that person looks nothing like me and th- th- I don't know them as a person. So I think, yeah, it's that relatable leader today. I think it's very, very, very powerful in my opinion.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I agree. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Now you, you've been talking about technology and that's what you do and work with organizations. What I've noticed is that the world seems to be getting faster, and technology, data. Blair, Blair will be telling you this about the data side of things. Um, shut up about social, business, technology. Everything is getting faster. So, in a fast-paced, ever-changing world, what do you reckon is going to make or help a leader become or be successful today?
1: Well, if you ask me, in it feels self-serving, but I think having more tech technologists that are passionate in your company um, will help you like take advantage of emerging technologies that are collaborative, technologies that will reduce the amount of time doing tasks and therefore free up the time to communicate meaningfully. And I'm the best example of that, or our company, Appliancy, is one of the best examples of that. A lot of the people in leadership and a lot of the people that have grown up at this company started as consultants and learned the other skills. They were already passionate technology people, and then they went out and learned operations or learned finance. And they were able to apply technology and solve problems in our company without just labor, but with you know, more intuitive solutions. I mean, we didn't until we were 50 people, I don't think we had anyone in finance. We didn't hire somebody in HR until we were maybe 30 plus. And it was because we were just finding self-service solutions. We were using more intuitive solutions for like 401ks. We were using betterment guideline instead of, you know, the old ones where you had to do all the paperwork and you got something in the mail that told you how it was doing. And so we just, and we looked at better HR HRS solutions. We looked at better accounting solutions. We looked at technology like Brex and Divi. So we didn't have to do Amex and spreadsheets for, so it was like, we just managed to get so much more out of our people doing the things that we care about instead of doing the menial tasks by leveraging technology. And the clients that we work with are very like-minded. And I think that's why they enjoy working with us because that's what we're so, that's what we try and show them. And we're like, I kind of joke, internally with people, but it's like we're kind of the example that we're trying to set to our clients. So we eat our own dog food. We're always trying to find that next amazing technology. The latest one to your listeners is that we've been using for about two years. It's called Fellow. And it's an amazing note-taking solution in meetings. It has made our agendas and our leadership meetings, just all of our meetings, so much more effective. And once we got that traction, we started showing it to our clients. And then they loved it too. That to me is, I think, one of the most important things I would want that I think is changing in leadership and can help with speed is really just look at like how much of the time your people are spending doing things that don't add value to the mission that your company has and invest heavily in reducing that. Because the number one cost in any company is labor. People are the most expensive. And they will spend such an enormous amount of time figuring out how to take your breaks out of the, the, your snacks out of the break room or take away these little benefits of yours or whatever it is, instead of figuring out how do they get more out of you, you know, by removing, you know, barriers. And that's something I've always been passionate about. And and I think that helps that rambling. I apologize, but I could go on and on and on for hours about that topic. That's what no, we I do. Think, here. I think, yeah, that's pretty much our yeah. our gig.
0: Nice. Well, I think this is what I'm hearing here is that Marcus is talking about the fact is that we need to invest in people, the right people, get them involved, get them underway, help them understand what's needed, you know, get them to understand the why and then get other ways, as you said before. So then they can actually then be the best that they can be to then really help the organization, to help the leadership, to help other businesses as well thrive in these fast changing times. And then that's the best way to do it. And so... I actually think the way I look at it, Marcus, is that we've done things, what we've done in the past, which has been great. But I think it's now we've actually got technology to do things smarter, to help us do that rather than having to do the grind in a longer version. It can be a lot quicker and it's actually going to be an enabler to help us get out there and do things. Where I actually see there's a lot of people out there today afraid of it. So they see it as not as an enabler, they see it as something taking them over or doing things, and and so it's a little bit of a barrier for them. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's two camps.
1: I think that there's a camp that believes that technology can reduce people or remove the need for people, and there's a camp that believes that technology is like an exoskeleton to people, meaning that can take great minds and great people and empower them to achieve more by reducing Mm. some of the meaningless tasks that they have to do all of our jobs, no matter what your job is, executive, no matter who you are, there's a fraction of your job that is not value add. And I think that applying technology to that is the best way to start. Technology isn't here to displace people. If you embrace it, it actually makes your life better. You know They've proven that they will not replace humans with technology. I mean, McDonald's, a Chick-fil-A, I ate a Chick-fil-A today. There's a human that took my order. There is plenty of technology in the world that they would not need people doing that. So why do they do it? Better experience for the customer, et cetera. So at the very front line of experiences with companies, you're always going to have people because they create the best experiences, in my opinion. And then you need to empower those people with technology to make them even better, right? So that to me is, yeah, I'm not, I tell my people, though also my own people are afraid that technology could replace them or they could be. But they don't. They think the opposite. They figure if they're the ones building the robots and figuring out what the automations could do, that they're on the right side of that and they're not at risk. They're part of that solution.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a whole lot of tasks that are out there that are mundane, if I could put it that way, or well, stuff that can be done probably a lot easier. And so the the, the example you just gave, you know, where you had lunch and something to eat today, yes, the human being is actually serving you and giving you that experience. But behind in the back end, it could be a whole lot of technology hit me right there. Oh, I them. guarantee you there tell.
1: is. Yeah. I, I, I guarantee you that if you looked inside the Chick-fil-A, it's probably all cre- kinds of machines and things and flipping, you know, but the the part that matters the most about Chick-fil-A's brand is the people. You know, they're some of the best people if you've ever eaten at Chick-fil-A. Their experience is far better than any others. But yeah, I think the other, you know, thinking about technology and and if you think it's going to replace you, then you're probably doing a job that you're not that passionate about. Because Mm -hmm. let's let's say you're stamping architectural drawings at like the county and you're just flipping the page and stamping it. If that your job is just to go in nine to five, stamp the things and then go home, then yeah, you're afraid technology is going to replace you. But if you're passionate about, you know, reviewing architectural drawings and making sure they follow code and everything, then you're going to say, all right, how do we do this better? How do I look through more of these quicker? How do I find more errors in these? And you're going to feel like you're part of the solution. And so a lot of that is it depends on whether or not you're probably doing something you enjoy as to whether or not you're afraid of being replaced.
0: Yep. Cool. Now you and I have been talking about leadership and about leaders. If we change lens or gear here and talk about employees and from their perspective, how has employees' expectations of leaders changed?
1: Well, I would have to say that I personally have only worked for a handful of companies and I never really got to experience true leadership. So I don't have a lot of personal experiences. But I would say that from what I've heard from our employees and, and just around, it does feel like authenticity and transparency is becoming incredibly important and valuable. And I think that that's compounding on companies spending more and more time on their why and, and trying to get the right people to join the company for the right reasons. And then once you've got people in the company that really, truly believe in the why and the mission, transparency and authenticity becomes like a multiplier. Because you're involving them in the goal. You're saying, Hey, we got this challenge or this thing, and we're working through it. And they get engaged on that. They're like, Okay, how can we solve this? Yes. But if they're not there for the why or everything else, then they're going to go somewhere else. You know, oh, there's a problem, or we're not perfect at this. Okay, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. So, I mean, there's so many different moving pieces you have to get right. And I think it's authenticity and transparency combined with a why and a good mission that you truly believe in. And then, that creates people that are true problem solvers in your company at every level. They're not just there for the ride. You know, they're there to, to really contribute in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, not there for the paycheck, but they are contributing in a meaningful way. I love that, yeah. how you finished that off here. Good. Now, we're gonna get you to get your crystal ball out here, and we're gonna talk about the future. Where do you see leadership being in five years? I think we're
1: just gonna to continue to see more and more authentic leaders. More and more relatable leaders. Silicon Valley tends to be, at least in the U.S., about five years ahead of the rest of the country. So, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I'm in Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road, and I'm seeing these young, twenty-two year olds, twenty-three year olds, doing startups and starting these big, amazing companies today—data companies and all this stuff—and they were wearing T-shirts and flip-flops, and you know, they were just relatable, normal people, and. They got a lot of crap for that back then. You know, Silicon Valley, California got a lot of crap for that. I tell you, I see that in Boston now. I see that in Austin. I saw that in Manhattan. I see it everywhere now. And, you know, it's really just, you know, the suit and tie is dead. You know, it's done. Hmm. It's going away. Hmm. You know, you and I are wearing t-shirts right now. You know, talking about leadership, Hmm. you know, ridiculous. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, probably would have been a suit and a tie, even though we're on a podcast.
0: So I think looks that, like, I'm gonna looks like I'm going to have to change my podcast cover photo. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> but, uh, No,
1: I mean, but it, it it is, it's, you know, you're just starting to see that relatable and authentic people are, are building these companies. And I, I feel like they're being more vulnerable, you know, today yeah. vulnerability. I mean, it's human. It's just being human. I have heard from people that work here, met our company. And I've just, you know, I just know myself well, I'm incredibly vulnerable if I screw up, it's how I start the all hands. If I screwed something up and why not, then the all hands would start with me saying, sorry, I screwed up everybody. Here's what I learned. I appreciate all the feedback. I'm going to improve on that. And I think when I did that with five or six people, it was because I knew them. I had worked with them for a couple of years and we're in the same room all day. But when I started doing that in front of 20 and 30 and 50 and a hundred plus people, it was just as easy for me, but the impact was different. You know, it it was like, well, now you're a CEO because you have over 100 employees. You know, now you're, because I never thought of myself as much of a CEO and a founder with five or six employees. I wasn't the first person to go get the Instaprint business cards that said CEO slash founder slash entrepreneur on them. You know, I wasn't that type of person. But when it started getting to 130 people or so, people look at you like that and they actually do see you as this leader, this CEO and being vulnerable at that point, because I'd always been. I would hear rumblings through the company or whatever, just in general, of like how impactful that was and how surprising that was. So yeah, just being human, in my opinion.
0: Nice. Yeah, very, very good. Well, Marcus, it's been enjoyable talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. If people are wanting to get a hold of you, where should they go to?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place. I get a lot of messages on there and I always reply to them. Anyone that's passionate in this industry, anyone that's just passionate about leadership, you know, it's just passionate. Reach out to me. You know, I, I just love, I love branding. I love design. I love technology, I love leadership. And I just love chatting with passionate people. So if anyone wants to reach out to me for any reason, hit me up on LinkedIn and I'll definitely reply.
0: Awesome. Well, once again, thank you for joining us. It's been a real good pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. All right, listeners. Hey, there's another wonderful episode of the Leadership is Changing podcast. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, bye for now.